part of the reason I give you problem sets is to try to get you to go back to the notes or important group page where you can do most of the time you can it. The other thing is I also give you the answers to the problem sets. But the other idea is the problem sets are giving you possibilities. So one of the questions on the exam in essence was very similar to what you asked in the problem sets. And part of the reason we do that is I think there were only 15 people that checked the answers to the problem sets. They told me that you guys were checking the problem sets, all right? So I would suggest you go through the problem sets and, and take a look at them because it gives you an idea of the types of questions. And so part of the reason why it's nearly identical is that, for one, I think it's important to understand the concept. But additionally, when you do the problem sets, people have struggled a little bit with that question. Um, and people weren't really going through and looking at those problem sets. So maybe you do those for a couple of purposes, one of which is to get you ready for the exam, give you examples of things you're going to see. And check those. I've seen a lot of people check it now. You've got your problem set back. Um, but also, in the final, a lot of the questions, you know, it's going to be about 40% of it's going to come from old information, and that old information will be in your problem sets. So start familiarizing yourself with those two factors. Okay. All right. Um, what we're talking about is how, in essence, carbon flux moves through the cell. And we were talking about glycolysis. You've all seen glycolysis before. And I'm trying to get you to think about it more in the terms of the chemistry that happens rather than worrying about um, just what goes in or what comes out. And we also talked about the endoduterol pathway. And I hope most of you are familiar with is that I'm drawing these in their linear forms. That's not going to happen in the cell. In essence, it's only going to drive from your open structure. And hopefully you know, if we have glucose, right? this in solution is more stable in the ring structure. And so what happens in the ring structure is in essence this Hydroxyl specifically, if you have a six-membered ring, you should remember in chemistry it's a very stable molecule. This will actually attack there. This will go up and pick up the proton. That's the proton that came off over here. So what happens is one way to draw this it would be occur 
And in that oxidation, what happens is it becomes like that. This is referred to anytime you have a ring structure as something like this. That's a lactone, right? Lactones can be very readily hydrolyzed. And so what you have is the dehydrogenase, which is what takes this and oxidizes it. And you have a lactonase, which in essence is pyrolyzing a lactone. And that's the easy way you convert an aldehyde to an acid. So you'll see very commonly in the ring form, um, in some of the structures we're going to talk about, particularly today, um, we'll show that ring form just to highlight this again. But that's generally what's going on. Right? And lactones are things that can be really easily broken open by water. And that's why you can use them very readily to convert aldehydes to acids. Right? So in this case, that's what's going on in these steps. So you went over energy or off pathway. It gives you less energy. It gives you one benefit that you get some NADH of the process. And you get some NAD. But in the end, you still wind up with two molecules of pyruvate, similar to what we had in glycolysis. The difference is, is since you make pyruvate up here, you only have one of the glycerolamide three phosphates moved from here, and that's why you have less energy in the context of how much ATP is generated. And you only make five of the precursors. In glycolysis, you saw that you only make six of those essential precursors. So if the cell is going to use the endoduterol pathway, it has to then figure out a way to get to fructose 6-phosphate, because that's what's missing in this pathway. The way they typically are going to get there is to go through gluconeogenesis, because in essence you can run part of glycolysis backwards. <coughs> so, if you're talking about these two pathways, really an organism will take glucose down to pyruvate, it also has the ability to go through the endoduterol pathway to get down to pyruvate as well. And as I mentioned earlier, that some organisms have both versions of this pathway, such as E. coli can do glycolysis or the endoduterol. Some bacteria only use the endoduterol pathway, some of them only use glycolysis. So everything we've talked about so far is summarized in the slide about these two different pathways. And also the fact that what we're going to be paying attention to is always these 12 essential precursors and how the cell gets between and generates these 12 essential so there's a limited number of chemical moieties used in biological molecules. I'm going to try to point those out throughout this. And then when you look at glycolysis, in essence, you can break it down into two components. The first is really to set up carbon-carbon um, bond breakage to get two phosphorylated concurrent compounds. The second part of glycolysis is solely set up to get those um, phosphates back off there and use this for um, retaining them as energy. And we went over the thermodynamics of glycolysis. It's means for controlling metabolic flux through the pathways. And so whenever you look at metabolic pathways, you'll see that some of the arrows are going in, um, there's some of the arrows between samples or double-headed arrows. And that's giving you an indication of their physiological conditions that can move forward and reverse. So it's at generally about equilibrium. Other reactions, you typically see that there's an arrow that's going in one direction. And what that means is the cell doesn't have the ability in those reactions to adjust the concentrations of substrates and products to enable it to move in the backwards direction. Right? So when we go through these pathways, we'll notice that some of these only have a single arrowhead, and that's because under physiological conditions, there's no way to change substrates and products in that direction. Okay. 
anytime there's a double, they barely can do that. So you can have glycolysis regulated by allosteric regulation, key metabolic pathways, you know about gluconeogenesis, uh, it's an alternative mechanism to get around thermodynamic and chemical reactions when you go reverse. And I gave you the example of archaea that actually uses a slight twist on glycolysis, but in the end, it's still a nice process for them to generate essential precursors at the same time also generating energy. And the ender deuteroff pathway does this in slightly alternative mechanism uh, to get the two molecules in time. Does anybody have any questions about those? So, if not, we're going to talk about the pentose phosphate pathway. And what we're doing, the reason why we're talking about these three pathways is they really deal with if you're starting with glucose and getting to pyruvate, these pathways all are in essence trying to break down glucose down into pyruvate. If it's being, if all of the carbon is moving all the way down to pyruvate. Now, to start with glucose, I put glucose 6-phosphate. I put it in this ring form. You can see why I'm doing that in just a moment. But glucose that is six carbon compound goes to glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate and three molecules of carbon dioxide. So there's going to be oxidation that occurs. How much oxidation? So there's a yes. What's that? Quite a bit. <laughs> so, you're going to make three molecules of CO2. It's oxidation state of each of those is um, plus four. So, in essence, you've got 12 that you've got to account for, which means you're going to remove 12 electrons from this process. Okay. So, we know that automatically because that reaction tells you that. Right? Knowing those oxidation values, you can quickly make that assumption. Right? Now, it's not surprising that if you all look at what else this pathway generates, it generates six molecules of NADPH. Right? Each one of those carries two electrons. So, in essence, all of these electrons are going to be dumped onto NADPH. Twelve electrons in that process. This is also going to generate pentose phosphates that are going to be something for nucleic acids, erythrose phosphate for aromatic amino acids. Um, and some of these reactions are quite similar to what we see in the Calvin cycle, how certain organisms, particularly plants, fix CO2, but you also see some of these um, reactions are also involved in the endoderon pathway. So this is summarizing overall what the pentose phosphate pathway does. <clears throat> and those essential precursors, you got ribose 5-phosphate, you got glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, you got erythrose 4-phosphate. Okay. And those are essential precursors that are going to be coming out of this pathway. <clears throat> the other thing that's important to keep track of is that NADPH comes out. Right? And as I mentioned, this becomes quite important because NADPH is commonly used to build things for the cell. And so many organisms will have a lot of flux through the pentose phosphate pathway so that they can actually generate enough of that NADPH to do other things in the cell. So as with all of these pathways, they look pretty complex, but we're going to try to break it down into basic components. And, you can, and breaking it down into simple components, I think, makes it a little bit easier to understand. The other thing is, is that you'll notice double-headed arrows in all of these systems, which means that 
there's the ability to move backwards and forwards between all these patterns depending on metabolic flux and what's required for the cell. If you're going to start pulling away a ribose 5-phosphate and using it for other components, that's going to throw the system off, but it's going to compensate because it can potentially move these backwards or it can move this forwards. Right? And so it's going to constantly do that. But you notice this beginning part of the pathway is pushing always that direction, and you're not going to have reversal of reactions. At least under physiological conditions. So we're going to walk our way through this pathway so that you can understand how it works. Because some of those processes that you're going to see are happening again and again in metabolism. And so if we're going to break into three steps, we're going to start off by looking at oxidative decarboxylation. And hopefully you'll be able to see that you guys have already, you know how to do this already. It's the same pattern we've already seen in glycolysis and the neural pathway. How cells can decarboxylate things to generate energy. It's very similar. And we're going to talk about the isomerizations through this and how once you get to ribulose 5-phosphate, you can very simply get to xylulose 5-phosphate and ribose 5-phosphate. And then the last is a series of reiterations. We're going to talk about the difference between a transketolase and a transaldolase. And hopefully you'll see that you've already learned that as well. It's a pretty straightforward process for how things move. Because if you go through this process and how they're rearranging, in essence all it is is, is making and breaking carbon-carbon bonds. And we know how to make and break carbon-carbon bonds. Particularly break them. Make sure you have a keto group or some type of functionality that allows you to push electrons. And it works pretty easily. So if we were to look at this first pathway, we start off with the oxidative decarboxylation. And it's on your, your slide. Now, we'll do the first step, glucose. 
You want to be able to keep it in the cell. What do you got to do with glucose to keep it in the cell? So you can always know the first step. Phosphorylated.
Do we want to oxidize it, reduce it, or reduce it? Oxidize. Oxidize it. So um, by doing that, in essence, what you're selling
So now that you've gone through ribulose 5-phosphate, then you have these series-like summarizations. So the first thing to notice about these is ribulose 5-phosphate is going to be converted to a molecule of xylose 5-phosphate or a molecule of ribose 5-phosphate. But notice, you need two after the isomerization happens because two of them are going to join together. What does that mean? Where are you going to get the second one from? So, how you would, so let's say the first one went through ribulose 5-phosphate and it was isomerized as ribulose 5-phosphate. Where is this going to come from? Right, so we say you do this once again, right? So now what you've done is run this through twice, which now gave you four molecules of NADPH and two molecules of CO2. So now you're two-thirds of the way to getting to where we have to go. And we'll talk about where that second molecule of glucose 6-phosphate comes from in a minute. If you're interested in how the isomerizations work, I've given you the catalytic mechanisms for that. But they're very similar to what we already talked about for how you convert glucose to fructose, and how, in essence, you're moving an aldehyde, that C double bond to an O, down to one carbon. works exactly the same way. You've already seen that. And then isomerization, or a hemorrhage, occurs. In essence, all you're doing is changing the stereochemistry of one of the hydroxyl it works in a very similar way as well. But they're in rapid equilibrium, so the cell can just move back and forth between these very efficiently and make sure that it has the appropriate concentration of <coughs> xylose 5-phosphates or ribose 5-phosphate, depending on what its needs are. And those reactions occur very quickly. And if you're interested, again, the other thing to keep track of in these systems is those Carbonyl groups or keto groups, they influence the acidity of neighboring protons, right? So the reason why this can move very readily is because that proton can be pulled off very easily because this makes it acidic, it's lost very readily. The reason why the epimerization can happen very easily is because this keto group also affects the acidity of this proton, so that can be pulled off very easily. So the positioning of that group dictates our carbon bond rate, which also dictates the chemistry that happens in the enzymology because it influences the neighboring carbons as well. So as long as you keep track of where those are, you can make assumptions about the things around you. Questions about that? Alright, the last part of this is these rearrangements. what is going to move from this position onto this aldehyde. Right? It's always going to require an aldehyde partner that's going to have either two carbons moved on to it or three carbons moved on to it. And the other thing I want you to keep track of is that <clears throat> notice where the bond breakage happens. Right? It's directly adjacent in this first one to that keto group. In this one over here, it's not directly adjacent to it, it's right here. Right? Now we know how to break 
a bond that's away from a keto group. What we're going to talk about is how do you break a bond directly adjacent to it? And it works, hopefully you'll see, exactly the same way we just discussed right here. Right? So, transketolases and transalbolases. <coughs> if you're going to move a C2, T, C2 unit onto an aldehyde, you're a transketolase. If you're going to move a C3 unit onto an aldehyde, you're a transalbolase. But all of it deals with carbon-carbon bond breaking and carbon-carbon bond making um, as well. So the issue becomes, how do you break that carbon-carbon bond right adjacent to that group? Because I told you so far, what you typically need to do is get this functionality to be not at the alpha carbon, but the beta Now, the key to transketolases is something called um, binding pyrophosphate. It's a cofactor. It's found in a lot of pathways itself. But if you see a pathway that there's a carbon carbon bond breakage that's immediately adjacent to that keto group, it should automatically click into your line that that's going to require binding pyrophosphate. Probably 95% of them. Hopefully you can see this. Right. So here's the cofactor. So the cofactor, that carbon, is going to tag the carbonyl that through a keto group that we're going to break the bond adjacent to. You see that getting the ropes? Now what happens is the bond that, remember, you've got to keep track of where the bond is that needs to be broken. In essence, it has to be broken right here. So we're ready to see that. Once diamond pyrophosphate attacks there, what you have is a carbon double bonded to a nitrogen that's formed. But if you'll notice where that is, that is, that carbon there is the alpha carbon, that's the beta. That for this carbon carbon bond breakage. So, in essence, what thymine pyrophosphate did is it introduced a carbon, bond, carbon double bond to a nitrogen at what would be considered the beta position if you looked at an alpha keto acid or a beta keto acid decarboxylation reaction. So, draw this through, and what you'll notice is the whole reason thymine pyrophosphate is there is what it's doing is introducing functionality that's identical as if you had a keto group at that position. And then you can push the electrons through to break the bond. We'll go through this in a little bit more detail. But what I want to do is highlight this. Right? So this is just showing you in a little bit more detail. We've talked about beta keto acids, how they can be decarboxylated, how you can break carbon carbon bonds. This is just using that keto, so if you have an aldolase, which we've talked about previously in glycolysis, if you want to break that bond, all you need to do is have that beta carbon have that keto functionality. Base pulls this off, drop the electrons, those electrons go here because of that functionality. That's what allows the carbon carbon bond breakage. For transketolase mechanisms, here's diamond pyrophosphate. It attacks that keto group. You want to break the bond adjacent to it. This is the structure. 
and what it's showing you is that that's the bond that needs to be broken. You pull these protons off, drop these electrons. That's the alpha carbon. That's the beta. Now you have a carbon double bond of nitrogen in exactly the same location. Everyone see that? Lots of bottles. Do you need that more detail? Push the electrons. Okay, now the reason why I point this out is if you understand this, again, it's all carbon carbon bond breakages. It's very, it simplifies a little The other thing is that if you're studying an enzyme that has to do a certain type of reaction, you need to know what to put into that reaction. If you're going to break this bond, you've got to throw in diamond carbon phosphate. It's almost guaranteed it has to be there. And your enzyme assay is never going to work if you don't do that. And you can make the assumption because of what the enzymes or the way the chemistry is actually happening. So, so in essence, what I'm trying to make is that <coughs> you want to break this bond, you can do that because of that functionality. You can also do it is you have a carbon double bond to break this bond because you have that functionality. They're exactly the same reactions. So to emphasize even more why those are exactly the same reactions, we went through the allylase mechanism and I made a big point about you have to have a keto group at the right location for you to break the carbon carbon bond. So if you go through these rearrangements in the trans um, ketolase system, that's why you need this line of higher phosphate to break that carbon-carbon bond right adjacent to that. <coughs> so if you look at this one down here, this transketolase, the breaking of that bond <coughs> is right adjacent to that keto group, so that transketolase has to require a diamond higher phosphate for the same reason. But if we look at this transaldolase, you've already seen an aldolase in glycolysis, all you need to do is add a for a keto group. It turns out that a lot of transketolases, or excuse me, transaldolases also use a carbon double bond to a nitrogen. And the way they do it is if this is the system where the, here's the keto group, in essence what happens is a lysine on the enzyme attacks it, and it forms the exact same thing, a carbon double bond to a nitrogen. So for some reason these enzymes evolved to do that reaction. It's a very, it's a spontaneous reaction that will switch it, but in essence you have a shift base there, and then the aldolase reaction happens exactly as we've already talked about. You can push the electrons, pull the proton off, drop the electrons, the electrons go over, because you have that carbon double bond to the electron. And now it's what we saw with climate carbon phosphate, but in this case it's with an aldolase. So that carbon double bond to nitrogen is so similar to this type of reaction, some aldolases set it up to do it that way, and others just keep that keto group functionality. So that's what's been shown on this slide. In essence, is you have the aldolase mechanism. If you're going to keep the keto group, if you have a trans aldolase, in essence, a carbon double bond of nitrogen replaces it. It's the same chemistry that moves things around. It's analogous to what happens in the carbon phosphate. 
just for your general knowledge, they call them type 1 versus type 2. Type 1s have a lysine at that position, again, to make the uh, carbon lip bond with nitrogen. Type 2s don't use the nitrogen. Um, but in essence, magnetically, they do exactly the same thing. And if you look through other types of alloys, like in glycolysis, we can talk about how fructose 1,6-bisphosphate can be broken. In mammals, plants, and in some prokaryotes, they use type 1. In some bacteria and fungi, they use type 2s. So they're pretty much interchangeable. And the endoderoff pathway uses a type 1 mechanism in its alloys transition. So just to show you that they're mechanistically quite similar, but also notice that the climbing pyrophosphate accomplishes, in essence, the same goal. So I kind of went through that quickly, but sit and push the electrons through. It's really easy to do that and understand the basic logic for how it works. Right? Because it's just repeating the type of chemistry we're doing. Now, we talked about how you have xylulose biphosphate, ribose biphosphate. This had to go through twice to be able to get you one molecule of xylulose biphosphate and one molecule of ribose biphosphate. So they come together, or there's a rearrangement that occurs. You have glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, instead you have nebulose 7-phosphate. The transaldolase reaction occurs, and it generates a molecule of fructose 6-phosphate and a molecule of erythrose 4-phosphate. Fructose 6-phosphate, we've already seen, can be converted to glucose 6-phosphate. So to get to this point, we had to go through this twice to get two molecules that of ribulose 5-phosphate to give you one molecule of xylose phosphate and one molecule of ribose 5 gone through the rearrangements, you've made one molecule of erythrose 4-phosphate, but you've generated a molecule of fructose 6-phosphate, so it can come back into the system. So this worked twice, but in the process of working twice to set this up, it's regenerated one of the starting molecules. So that, you still only move one molecule of glucose 6-phosphate into the system. Does that make sense? Erythrose 4-phosphate combines with xylulose 5-phosphate. The source of that xylulose 5-phosphate is run this a third time. Right? So if you run this a third time, that gives you six molecules of NADPH and three molecules of CO2. When you combine erythrose 4-phosphate and xylulose 5-phosphate together, you generate glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate. Fructose 6-phosphate can be converted into glucose 6-phosphate very readily. So in essence, the system used three molecules of glucose 6-phosphate, generated three molecules of CO2, one molecule of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, but since it regenerated two molecules of fructose 6-phosphate, in essence, you net only moved one molecule of glucose 6-phosphate through the system. So the whole process here is really to burn off three of those molecules, three of those carbons off the glucose 6-phosphate, release them as CO2, and capture all that electron power, NADPH. The other part of this is to make, you've got to build things with this, so you make glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. That can go through the bottom of glycolysis. So that's why you have three carbons here, three carbons here. There's only six net carbons that have moved through the whole process. 
everyone will see that. So, what we've talked about so far is glycolysis getting pyruvate. We talked about the endoduroff pathway can get you to two molecules of pyruvate. And we talked about the pentose phosphate pathway, which actually gets you to glyceraldehyde free phosphate. If you have a bottom half of glycolysis, you can then convert glyceraldehyde free phosphate to pyruvate very easily. And so all of these are funneling through to generate a molecule of pyruvate. And in the process, they've generated, I think we're up to eight of the 12 essential precursors of the cell. And if you walk yourself back through these pathways, you'll notice there are arrows going, double-headed arrows in single directions. That's because these, in essence, work in unison to make sure you have all those precursors around to make sure the cell can grow efficiently. If you pull metabolites away from the pentose phosphate pathway, the rest of the system adjusts to make sure the appropriate concentration of those essential precursors are still available. So 50% of it, if you're moving through this, is going to go through and be used for carbon utilization. Potentially have 50% of it going off being used for, to build things itself or to generate energy. So 50% for building, 50% for energy. And that's what the cell is using in this system. So walk yourself back through those. And I'll probably spend a little bit on Friday to go back through a little bit of that mechanism to make sure you understand it. But it's really a straightforward, simple process over and over again repeating. Put a carbon double bond to something at the perfect location, it happens to be. Right? That's most of the time. So if you haven't picked up your problem set,